Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, three months after the attack on the US Capitol building in Washington, D.C., the seat of the US government has come under attack once again. We'll have analysis of this latest act of violence. In Britain, it's been another interesting week in politics. We'll have a roundup of the goings-on in Westminster. Andrew Muller will also round up the week, but in a somewhat broader and more irreverent way. So we learned that humanity owes its ongoing existence as we go to where? To the odds against a curious toddler tapping, yo, pick this one out, Pyongyang, into an unsupervised laptop. We'll also look through the front pages with Ruth Michelson and our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, asks what's in a name in his weekend column. When someone opened a sandwich shop near my house called Butty Boys, I was never quite sure if it was an act of defiance, a disarming joke or just a good place to get a sandwich. It closed down. All that coming up on Monocle on Saturday. First, though, here are the headlines. In Washington, D.C., a police officer was killed and another injured when a car crashed through a security barrier before the driver lunged at the officers with a knife. The suspect was shot dead. Authorities said the attack did not appear to be terror-related. Myanmar security forces opened fire on pro-democracy protests today, killing five people as the military reinforced its bid to end dissent with arrest warrants for online critics and internet blocks. Despite the killing of more than 550 people by the security forces since the February the 1st coup, protesters are coming out every day, often in smaller groups in smaller towns, to voice opposition to the re-imposition of military rule. Al-Shabaab militants attacked two military bases belonging to the Somali National Army early this morning. The bases, located about 100 kilometres southwest of the capital, Mogadishu, were struck by two explosions, witnesses said. A third explosion targeted a convoy of troops rushing to the bases from the capital after the attack. The long weekend is here for many of us and with it a few collected thoughts in our regular weekend edition email bulletin, including how to navigate a cold call, an ode to the sunglasses cord and dispatches from Australia's smallest radio station. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, let's pick up on that attack on the Capitol in Washington, D.C. yesterday. And joining me on the line is Scott Lucas, adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute, University College of Dublin. Scott, welcome to the show. What exactly do we know about the attack yesterday? Well, we know that uh, a single attacker, uh, a suspect named Noah Green, originally from Indiana, but now living in Virginia, 25 years old, rammed his car into um, Capitol Police outside the U.S. Capitol building. He struck two officers. Uh, One of them, an 18-year veteran of the force named William Evans, uh, died of his injuries. Another is seriously injured. The question which has immediately arisen is, okay, why did this occur? Uh, What do we know about Noah Green? Law enforcement were very quick to say that they don't see this as being terrorist related, which I think means that, you know, they're almost certain that he acted alone. The initial uh, information which has come out from his social media post is that he was 
let's say, very unsettled individual, that he thought government agencies were out to get him, that he expressed the fact that he had been the target of, of several attempted assassinations. Um, he was trying to get his life back together by taking a, a master's of business administration course. Um, that is about all that we know about him. So there's nothing to connect him to a wider movement. There's nothing here to, to, to as it were, equate this with what happened on January 6th with that organized attack on the U.S. Capitol. But already there's a danger that we're seeing in that right-wing attack media in the United States, Fox News and Breitbart, are seizing on the fact that Noah Green had referred to the Nation of Islam, uh, the black Muslim group in America, and its leader, Louis Farrakhan. And they said, oh, well, he, he, he was a follower of Farrakhan, trying to, to plant this seed, this poisonous seed, that somehow this was an organized black Muslim attack with all the racial and religious um, connotations that carries upon, you know, U.S. police forces in the nation's capital. Uh, and why is this building still vulnerable to attack? I mean, we all saw what, what happened on the 6th of January. Uh, security was meant to be beefed up, and yet this was still able to take place. Well, I mean, I have to emphasize this was at some distance from the Capitol building itself. I mean, that's a fairly large complex for, for folks who've been in Washington. And, you know, this was, at, you know, not at the doors of the building by any means. And as soon as the attack took place, the building was locked down. People inside were told not to move uh, and held there for about 90 minutes. Uh, there had been just over a week ago a, a, an easing of the measures taken after the January 6th Capitol attack. Uh, there was a removal of barbed wire from outside uh, the Capitol complex. But Georgina, if an attacker is, is that devoted, if, if, if in effect they're almost on a suicide mission, they will be able to reach Capitol mm -hmm. Police. Uh, and that's what we saw yesterday. Uh, it was very quickly contained. I think the broader question here is America is still in a very fraught state. It's still in a very tense state after what happened a few months ago. And the importance of putting this event in context, establishing what happened and trying to get some kind of closure on it is going to be essential in the days and weeks to come. So now there has been a six-week review of security at the Capitol, uh, but basically all the proposals are caught up in, in partisan infighting. Exactly. I mean, the, there were lapses of security on January the 6th that have been admitted, um, both by the Capitol Police, by the sergeants of arms uh, for the House of Representatives and the Senate. Indeed, the heads of those bodies stepped down. And you had a new acting head of Capitol Police that was, you know, making the announcements yesterday. But from what we know about January 6th, part of the delay in responding to what occurred was because of politics. Donald Trump would not respond to appeals to bring out the National Guard. Donald Trump would not even call his president, his vice president, Mike Pence, who was in the building among the legislators that were besieged by the attackers. That sensitivity that Trump, in effect, even and he has been accused of inciting the violence, even if he didn't incite the violence, he didn't act to stop it, means that Republicans three months later, many of them Trumpists, do not want a full review of security because it could expose the, what politics did to pervert that security in January and given the wrong person in the White House, what it could do in the future. Mm. Now, the, the, that report that we referred to says that the nature of the threats against the Capitol and members of Congress have changed and increasingly come from domestic elements. And I just want to return to what you said about the right-wing news organisations trying to paint this as some kind of Farrakhan-related attack. And, of course, authorities are talking about uh, it being a mental health issue. Yeah, I mean... What has quite happened is, is that when we've had, for example, um, white attackers who've carried out 
you know, in, indeed mass killings, indeed the recent mass killings, for example, um, in Atlanta, that you quickly scramble and that these same right wing organizations will deny any type of, as it were, political motive and will say, oh, it must be a mental health issue. You just flip it yesterday that when you have a person of color, when, it, you know, Noah Green is black, uh, the immediate scramble is on by those organizations to try to tie him mm. uh, to some type of dangerous racial organization and indeed to tie him to, to, to Islam because of the connection with the nation of Islam. I just start from this, Georgina. Rather than anyone jumping to a left-right issue, whether anyone jumping to white supremacy or jumping to the idea of an Islamist terrorist group, you start with the facts on the ground and work out. That's what responsible journalism is. The problem is we don't have journalists or so-called journalists who are acting responsibly, or at least not acting to report. They're actually trying to pursue a political agenda. We've seen that in America for years, not just in recent weeks. And it's gonna be really important that at the political level, at the level of the media and the level of individuals, a sense of responsibility is what we try to put a priority on. Because, you know, even though I think this is a better administration in office, I think they're being competent and effective, um, the polarization of America, that type of damage takes years to repair. Scott, thanks very much indeed. That's Scott Lucas. And this is Monocle 24. Well, it's time now for us to join Ruth Michelson, a journalist who's based in Istanbul, to have a look through the newspapers. Good morning to you, Ruth. Morning, Georgina. So, of course, this Capitol attack uh, happened yesterday uh, and we've we've just been talking to to Scott Lucas about it. We were talking about the kind of racist element of it, too. uh, And that's something we've seen very much uh, in the US this week because it's been the trial of Derek Chauvin, who is the officer who knelt on the neck of George Floyd and sparked all those anti-racism protests around the globe last summer. How is it being reported? So um, if you go to some of the major US papers, so looking here at some coverage from the Washington Post and the New York Times, obviously this is um, a huge focus and we're getting the day by day um, results from the trial. The New York Times, for example, has a vertical um, just dedicated to the trial and its findings. They give out uh, little daily briefings about the major summary of each day and bigger analysis. Um, so, for example, they focused um, on the takeaway from yesterday, looking at um, what they say is critical testimony from the longest serving officer in the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, and this is someone that testified that Derek Chauvin's actions were, in his words, totally unnecessary. So their focus is very much on um, these takeaways and policing tactics and what this means in the wider context, um, which is something that we're not necessarily seeing in quite the same way in some of the international coverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, De Spiegel, I think, uh, focuses on the uh, girlfriend, Courtney Ross, uh, who talks about their mutual addiction to pain medication, which really feeds into this whole thing that the police are trying to excuse it because they're saying Floyd was a drug addict. Right. I mean, if looking at some of the coverage in Der Spiegel and also in um, the French outlet Le Point, um, these, you know, the, there isn't really any mention of the context of racialized policing in in either of these pieces. Um, it's very much kind of pieces that they put out at the beginning of the trial um, to say that this is a huge trial and this this is happening and there were these protests. But then it kind of gets into well, you know, one party is saying that this was um, about 
uh, he, his death was due to drugs and the other party says something different. Um, and it really kind of emphasizes that it makes it seem as though this is an isolated inf uh, incident as opposed to being a hugely symbolic trial. Um, so it's quite a strange way to cover it. Mm, absolutely. Let's move on to vaccine uh, passports. Uh, this is quite proving to be quite controversial. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, well, I suppose it's controversial depending on who you're talking to, even more controversial. Um, so talking about vaccine passports and whether um, it is ethical to require vaccinated people to carry some kind of documentation, whether electronically or in paper form, to prove that they've been vaccinated um, and what does this mean. So quite a um, forceful uh, editorial in Bloomberg Businessweek um, where they, they outlined some of the criticisms, including from the World Health Organization, saying that vaccine passports might exacerbate inequality, that there are privacy issues. Um, but at the same time, they essentially say, well, vaccine passports would be temporary and, you know, we need this for our freedoms, essentially. Mm. Can we see what the European papers say about this, particularly in Austria? Yes, Austria seems to be firmly pro, and I thought this was quite interesting because um, it, Aust the Austrian press, um, including Der Courier, um, there was also some um, uh, DPA, Deutsche Presse Agentur um, coverage that um, is getting some play there, um, is essentially speaking about vaccine passports as though these are happening and this is the great hope, even though Austria so far, um, it says in Der Courier, has vaccinated 400,000 people out of a population of 8 million. Um, but the phrasing of this coverage is like, well, if you want to go on holiday this summer, there will be vaccine passports and this is great because this is apparently what one of the, uh, what the Austrian health minister said. Right. I really want to, to look at this story about um, Satan shoes. Yes. I mean, would you like to wear some trainers with a single drop of blood in them on your own feet? I don't know. But apparently uh, they are they are art. So this is a court case uh, that took place earlier this week between um, uh, Nike, the, the maker of trainers, um, and uh, a company called MSCHF Product Studios, um, who made a special customized versions of the Nike Air Max 97 sneakers um, to go with um, a music video from the rapper Lil Nas X, which he's lap dancing with the devil in the video. And they made this, this uh, 666 pairs of these trainers, um, which apparently contain a single drop of human blood. Um, and uh, they're also printed with a Bible passage. Um, and Nike essentially has tried to block the sale um, of these shoes. But actually, it turns out, even though they've succeeded in doing that earlier this week, uh, that 665 pairs of them have already been sold. And Lil Nas X was about to try and decide who gets the final pair. And so that's the only pair that's actually being argued about in court now. One pair of shoes. <laughs> I mean, do you want them? Maybe they'll be very expensive. I think they retail at over $1,000. Well, so here's the thing. I get blisters quite easily. My shoes are often filled with blood. <laughs> <laughs> And you get that for free. Exactly. But it's not quite so cool, is it? Um, Ruth, thank you very much indeed. That's Ruth Michelson. And this is Monocle on Saturday. The Entrepreneurs is Monocle 24's 30-minute weekly conversation with inspiring business leaders from around the world, uncovering the secrets of resiliency and growing a company and the many definitions of success.
Now we're craving curation in a very different way and have understood how small businesses have given complete life to our streets and communities. And I think we'll value them in a completely different way, which I'm excited about. I think in your standard entrepreneurial journey, there's a lot of times when you might want to throw in the towel. But if impact is really at the heart of what you do, you don't have that option. You have to stick to your guns. Join me, Daniel Bates, for a new episode of The Entrepreneurs every Wednesday at 2000 London time right here on Monocle 24. It's been a busy week in Westminster with a fair amount happening with the Conservative Party facing corruption accusations, the aftermath of the report on racial inequality in the UK and uh, what Boris Johnson has been hinting about possible vaccine passports to say nothing of his deeply unsettling and unravelling personal life. Well, joining me on the line is Vincent McAvinney, who's a political reporter and Monocle 24 regular. Uh, Vincent, let's just jump in straight at the salacious end and talk about Jennifer Akuri and the fact that the Prime Minister's affair with her, which she's now publicly admitted, doesn't seem to really have caused ripples. Something that would have been a resigning offence even half a decade ago barely raises an eyebrow. Yeah, completely. And I think it is very much down to the unique persona that is Boris Johnson. I think if this was any other British prime minister, particularly one of a party which still to this day trades in being about family values, that still had about half of its membership object to gay marriage when it put it to a vote, uh, you know, in the last decade, that uh, they wouldn't really uh, survive. But there is something weirdly unique in Boris Johnson's character where it was kind of built into the deal. We all knew that he was, there's no other word for it, a shagger. Um, And (laughs) that was part of the package. Some people like it, it seems. Uh, But there is something much more serious at stake here, which is that he may have used government funds to bring her on trips to which she should not have been uh, entitled. Yes, uh, very much so. That is the question mark now about his time in City Hall, her access to these uh, trips, you know, whether she was actually a legitimate businessman. If you look at her kind of, you know, her profile at the time, speak to people who are around her. She was a bit of a sort of clownish figure. Um, And so the fact that she managed to get, you know, £126,000 allegedly of public money through this connection, going on these trips, that it's very strange behaviour when all this is going on. But I think what's really interesting still is that, you know, the the newspaper that's really you know she has kind of flirted with the media before she's made some appearances but not really said much it's the mirror group which is a labor supporting uh newspaper traditionally which has gone for this story you know to to get her to tell her truth when you look at the pickup in most of the rest of the press and papers that would normally be going crazy for this, like the Sun, like the Mail, uh, like the Telegraph, uh, you know, not really touching it. In fact, when I was checking the latest lines this morning, when you put in Jennifer Arcuri's name into Google search and pull up news, one of the top hits is the Telegraph saying, here's why this can't possibly be Boris's kitchen, trying to dispel this image that's come out of a Jennifer Arcuri in Boris Johnson's kitchen, she claims. So, you know, these papers are actively sort of running cover for her as well, and for Boris Johnson. Extraordinary. Now, Allegra Stratton, who is Johnson's press attaché, uh, press spokesperson, uh, said something about he's acted completely within Nolan rules. I have no idea what that means. 
Yeah, I mean, nor do I. Uh, and, you know, this is like Shatton, someone I worked with that I formerly quite respected, but I think her answer on this was pretty ridiculous. Um, you know, Nolan rules, the, the Nolan sisters, you know, he's in the mood for dancing, romancing, <laughs> that's what comes to mind. And certainly in the mood for chancing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Definitely. Um, so, you know, that I don't quite know. You know, Boris Johnson's line, and he repeats this often, is that, you know, in his decades of public life, he doesn't talk about his public life. Yeah, because there's a hell of a lot to talk about and you know that flew perhaps when you were in the more junior grades uh but now you're the prime minister and you also have spent your career as a journalist writing about other people so you know the idea that you shouldn't have your private life talked about when you're the leader of the country when you have two uh i believe you know recognized uh children outside of your uh, past marriage uh, and question marks about whether there are others as well. You know, this is compromising material. The kind of life Boris Johnson has led meant that he would never get past the vetting that perhaps many senior civil servants, people in the intelligence services would need to go through. Um, and it does leave him, you know, open to, to distraction, open to, you know, these kind of issues becoming uh, wrong. And so I think that is why Boris Johnson can no longer say his, you know, his private life isn't an issue uh, when, you know, it is obviously causing him, you know, time to sort of deal with it away from all the other issues of the day. Mm. Now, another hugely controversial thing that's come up this week is the race report. Uh, so the government uh, commissioned this race report after the Black Lives Matter. Uh, the, uh, the, it's, a, it's a report by the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, uh, prompted by those protests. Uh It says that Britain is not institutionally racist. And frankly, this has been mocked by many. Mm. Yeah, I mean, rightly so. I think this report is pretty galling. Uh, there was just kind of a lot of shock and surprise at how, you know, it tried to completely ignore the problems that I think many people will recognise going back decades of of structural racism and inequality uh, in British society. Um, And I think, you know, it's very hard to deconstruct all of this and to really step back. You know, you and I both perhaps look at Britain from a slightly outside perspective. I'm Irish-Scottish, but I wasn't raised in the UK. I was kind of raised in Luxembourg and Jersey. So I kind of look and, and you know, at, at Britain sometimes from an outside perspective. And it's very clear to me. I also have a father who, who is Irish who talks about when he came to London to work as a young man in the 70s. You know, there were signs around saying no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. Um, and, you know, he, he, you know, he faced prejudice because of his accent, because of his background. So this is something that goes back a long time um, with Britain. And, and this report is kind of shocking. And, and one other standout for me is the fact of, you know, the British education system uh, in the history curriculum, I have huge issues with. I think I, I had the experience of going to an American school where you learn more about the slave trade, about colonialism, because it's part of the birth of their nation. Um, and whereas the British curriculum, it really steers away from all of that, it effectively covers a lot of that up, covers up entirely what the British Empire did in parts of Africa, closer to home in Ireland as well, with the famine and its responsibilities on that. And I think there's, there's this part of it where it says, um, you know, the, the colonial past Uh, It speaks to the slave period, not only being about profit and suffering, but how culturally African people transform themselves into a remodeled African Britain. What? 
the hell does that mean? Mm. That is an absolute glossing over of one of the darkest chapters in Britain's history. Uh, And the fact is that a lot of um, experts were quoted who now say that they were never consulted. Yeah, I mean, this report really is starting to come apart uh, at at the seams. It was commissioned in response to, you know, the George Floyd uh, sparked Black Lives Matter protests that, you know, went all around the world and were in Britain last year. But it seems very much an operation from from Downing Street to to sweep this under the rug to sort of say, yeah, Britain's doing great. Don't worry about this. Mm. And just finally on this story, I see that the BBC is running a story today saying, was controversy part of the plan on this race report? I mean, perhaps it is a way just to make us all examine ourselves and start talking. I'm trying to be forgiving here. It's very difficult. I mean, that, that is something, I mean, you know, part of, Part of what has happened in the past 18 months is that, you know, in the United Kingdom and in the US, you know, we have had uh, the conservative governments trying to deal with the pandemic. And there have obviously been huge issues. There are scandals brewing about the conduct of ministers, about contracts, all of that kind of stuff on both sides of the Atlantic. And part of the reaction from the sort of right aligned think tanks, right aligned press has been to stir up this culture war um, on all kinds. You know, in the US, it gets to extremes about, you know, characters on Sesame Streets and, and Looney Tunes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but in the UK, there, ha- there has been attempts at it similarly. You know, things, Meghan Markle, I think, is a case in point on this. This racism report as well. It is, it's, some of this is, is, is just distraction, it seems. Vinny, thank you very much indeed. That was Vincent McAvinney there. our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, recaps what we learned this week. We learned this week something of what former US President Benito Cartman now spends his days doing in between seething, cheating at golf and attempting to log back into Twitter as Tonald Trump. We learned that he has taken up crashing weddings, or at least that he has crashed one wedding, so maybe he'll make a thing of it. Who knows? We learned that a couple who chose to get married at Trump's Palm Beach lair, Mar-a-Lago, were treated, as they may well have seen it, having knowingly selected said venue, to a surprise appearance by the proprietor. If we assume that they would have been disappointed if Trump didn't hijack the greatest day of their lives to whine absolutely interminably about how dreadfully unfair everything is to him personally, they would not have been disappointed. They said, get 66 million votes, sir, and the election's over. Well, I got 75 million, and they said, but you know, you saw what happened. 10.30 in the evening, all of a sudden, they said, that's a strange thing. Why are they closing up certain places? Enticingly, however, we learned that it may be possible for more of us to involve America's 46th best president in our own soirees, wingdings, shindigs, and indeed bacchanals. We learned that Donald Trump has launched a new website at 45office.com, among the features of which is a form enabling requests for personal appearances by the man who was, for reasons still surpassing understanding, actually president. Weep if you can spare the tears for whichever poor intern has to sift through the thousands of messages from IP Freely, Alcoholic, Rod Clutcher, Haywood Jablomi and Eric Trump. Thanks.
Thanks kindly. But we learned that, perhaps more accessibly, one can also solicit personalised greetings from the big weirdo. The drop-down menu of suggested occasions includes birthdays, weddings and, intriguingly, condolences. We learned that, so far at least, Trump will not respond to inquiries vis-a-vis recording cameo roles for whimsical news monologues. But we'll always have soup. And then they have cans of soup. 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 But... The air attack warning sounds like... This is the sound. We learned of other potential vulnerabilities in the United States nuclear chain of command above and beyond the whims of the American electorate. When you hear the air attack warning, you and your family must take cover. On Sunday, United States Strategic Command issued from its official Twitter account the intriguing communique semicolon L semicolon semicolon GML XZSSAW. While we have no real idea what a launch code looks like, we'd have no trouble imagining that such things do include an amount of random letters and incongruous punctuation. And certainly better that than Nuke123. Well, quite. We swiftly learned, however, that this potentially ominous gobbledygook was not an encrypted incitement of Atomic Armageddon, but the consequence of Stratcom's social media manager leaving their keyboard unattended while working from home. The gibberish post was the work of their young child. So we learned that humanity owes its ongoing existence as we go to where to the odds against a curious toddler tapping yo. yo pick this one out Pyongyang into an unsupervised laptop. And let's have the seamless gear change noise again. Because sticking, well sort of, but we reckon we can land this, with the theme of prosaic explanations for bemusing events, we learned what did not cause this week's massively inconvenient yet undeniably amusing blockage of the Suez Canal by a wayward freighter. You've been enjoying those, haven't you? All right, Ahab, settle down. We learned, indeed were specifically instructed, that the pranging of the cargo ship ever given into the Suez Canal buttresses was emphatically not a consequence of a curse laid by Tutankhamun, pharaoh of Egypt circa 1342 to 1325 BC, it says here. This may have seemed an iffy hypothesis anyway, given that King Tut has been apparently content to let ships come and go for ages, but we learned that the fact of this weekend's ceremonial transfer to a new museum in Cairo of 22 ancient royal mummies, combined with morons on the internet, had set loose the theory of Tutankhamun's frankly obtuse vengeance. Renowned Egypt boffin and former antiquities minister Zahi Hawass appeared on local television to dismiss this notion as balderdash, bunkum, poppycock and, if you will, moonshine. Hawass remarked as follows, as translated by Monocle's ancient maledictions desk chief, Carlotta Ribello. 
this accident is just fate and there is no connection between it and the mummies at all. So we learned that that settles that. Unless, of course, Mr. Hawass is in on it and is deliberately running interference as part of some sort of... No, don't. No, no, no. no, 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 no really. Seriously, no, don't. Don't hear it. No oh, God, Andrew, no. Pyramid scheme. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. I don't know him. I just don't know him. Let's move on quickly. Now, let's hear our Editor-in-Chief, Andrew Tuck's Weekend Column. If you started a restaurant, what would the concept be? A few of the team were pitching amusing, if bound to fail, ideas to each other when our managing editor, Tom Reynolds, offered up the Toast Office. Not only is it a very good name, not only does almost everyone like toast, but, as he pointed out, his raw ingredient costs would be very low... You can see why he's the managing editor. And you wouldn't need to hire expensive chefs. As I said, you can see why he's the managing editor. He even suggested giving the slices of bread serrated edges to make them look like stamps. But with the name, there's also the scope to move into offering co-working services. But don't give him too much encouragement. I need him staying put for the moment, please. This week... Volkswagen managed to sow confusion by declaring that it was changing its name to Volkswagen in the US to reflect its move into electric vehicles. Then it had to hurriedly declare that it had all been a joke, an April Fool's prank somehow released in March as part of a marketing bid to drum up interest in the brand. Trouble was, people liked it, so the share price rose on the news and the joke ran away from them. It also failed as a spoof because many organisations go through rebranding exercises that cost millions and end up with far less tolerable outcomes. For example, in the UK, back in 2001, the Venerable Post Office changed its name to Consignia before swiftly switching back again after everyone wondered what the hell it meant. Was it an unsightly rash? Was there a cream for it? Just imagine where proposals for the Toast Office would be today if that had actually stuck. This week, a race commission in the UK suggested that the term BAME, Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic, be ditched, as many of the people covered by the acronym didn't seem to like it, let alone use it. The work of the commission has been highly contentious. It denies the existence of institutional racism, But on this issue, it did find widespread agreement because people feel uncomfortable having their identities stripped of nuance. It's the same with LGBTQIA. These trains of letters are used by institutions keen to sound inclusive, but who end up sounding lazy. And even people supposedly represented by this ever-extending chain rarely know what it actually stands for. One offensive name for gay people is Batty Boy, but in the UK, the name for a bread roll filled with, say, bacon is a butty. Even so, when someone opened a sandwich shop near my house called Butty Boys, I was never quite sure if it was an act of defiance, a disarming joke, or just a good place to get a sandwich. It closed down. Let's get rid of parking bays on streets and turn them into mini gardens. 
They had a spree of doing this a couple of years ago around Monocle's London HQ along the rather smart Marleybone High Street. Now the soil has blown away, the plants are dead or clinging on for dear life. But some good news. It turns out that they make excellent places to throw rubbish. London is destined to get many more of these cool parklets in the coming months. But without adding a gardener to the budget, they are eyesores. The iPad is a boon for seniors with failing eyesight. It's easy to make text look huge, for example. And the same with Alexa and Siri, when you need to know the time. But having just spent a weekend helping a partially sighted senior get used to this technology, I wonder if there's an opportunity for adapting some old-school bits of kit to make it less daunting. Instead of a sleek HomePod, for example, how about hiding the technology in something more familiar, say, a cuckoo clock? You'd say, hey cuckoo, what's the time? And it would pop out and chirp the answer. His eyes could be mini cameras that spotted when you'd forgotten to take your medication. Cuckoo, hello my dear, it's time for your linktus. And it would happily whistle any tune from the 1950s on request. Well, it's as good an idea as Volkswagen. Thank you very much to Andrew Tuckham. That's all we have time for today. The programme was produced by Marcus Hippie and our studio engineer was Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin and Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. Now, don't desert us now because we've got lots more wonderful programming and uh, great music coming up. Thanks for listening. Listener.